What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome to Creature Feature, production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today on the show, listener questions. Again, you guys send me in your questions, and I love to answer them. So let's get right into it, I guess. Uh, I got some really good questions this time, so I'm very excited to answer them. All right, so I got some emails, I got some tweets. I'm going to start off with an email from Rachel. My name is Rachel, and I love your show. I've been a fan since episode one, and Creature Feature has been the highlight of my week ever since. Thank you so much. You're so sweet. As a result, I have become the person at work that will randomly spout animal facts in conversation. Excellent. One such conversation resulted in a question. How do ticks? Where I live, ticks are a constant problem, but how do they get so prevalent? Like, in order for a tick to reach maturity, it needs to find an animal to gorge itself on, right? Then it rides that animal to who knows where. I know that there are male and female ticks. How do they find each other? It would seem like their nutritional and reproductive needs are at odds with each other. Second, I had a topic idea. Pride Month is coming up and I am transgender. I would love to learn more about animals that have the ability to change sex or mimic the opposite sex. I know you have touched on it a little in the past, frogs, cuttlefish, etc. I think it would be cool to learn about the gender and sexual fluidity in nature. Anyways, thanks for making a great show. Don't ever stop being you. Take care, Rachel. Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for your kind words and your your great questions. First of all, I think that sexual fluidity is a great idea for a show, and I'd love to do an episode on that real soon. Just to quickly touch upon it, there are actually many species of ray fin fish who are masters of sexual fluidity, like clownfish. So with clownfish social structures, there are dominant females and breeding males in a hierarchy But when the dominant female dies, the dominant male will actually become the new dominant female and undergo reproductive changes to become female in the hierarchy. 
I think it's important to point out, and Rachel, I know that you're not saying this, but I think whenever we talk about like, we kind of make comparisons to human sexuality and sexuality in nature, it's an important note that like animals for the most part Although, well, I'll, I'll talk about this a little later, but for the most part, generally speaking, animals don't really have a gender, so to speak. So I, I bet if we do uh, research into intelligent animals, we may actually find some interesting information on the animal's concept of gender expression. But when we talk about uh, animals in general, like animals going through, say, a, a change of sex, like a clownfish changing from male sex to female sex, this is a physical, physiological process, whereas in humans, gender expression is it's different. I'm not necessarily an expert on gender expression in humans, but I think that for people, it's both an internal and an external experience. It's both social and uh, deeply personal. So like you, you have your own personal concept of gender within yourself, and then there's also socially constructed gender. And so all of that interacts in a very uh, complex way. And so anytime we talk about animal sex, like it's it's going to be very different from humans, but not completely like, it's not as if we can't enjoy seeing sort of like the diversity of sexual changes in animals. <laughs> and, you know, I do think it's interesting when people try to justify bigotry against trans people or sexual and gender minorities by citing like, oh, it's not natural. And people who say things like that tend to not know anything about nature. I mean, when you look at nature, it is so diverse when it comes to sex and reproduction. So to say like, oh, well, this isn't natural. It's like, well, okay, but nature has so much stuff going on when it comes to sexual reproduction. Like, how can you say it's not natural? You can, there's, nature has every type of sexual reproduction you can think of, every type of sex, uh, every type of kinds of behavior. So to say like, this isn't natural, it's like, well, I mean, first of all, who cares if it's not natural? We're, We're humans. We have televisions and medicine, which you could argue aren't natural either. But secondly, it's just wrong. It's, nature has no, like, one type of sexuality. That's ridiculous. In terms of actual gender expression in animals, it's a much more complex question than, say, like uh, sexual fluidity in animals, because you can see, you can look at a clownfish and see that, okay, so it it goes under this hormonal change where, you know, a clownfish will, like that situation I described, when the dominant females die, the dominant male will undergo this hormonal change and actually uh, express uh, female genitals. And so that's an external physical change we can observe. So researchers can actually observe that directly. But gender uh, in humans uh, is an in, often not just a social experience, but an internal experience. So we can't just ask an animal, like, like what, what are your feelings on gender? Uh, what does that mean to you? So it's very hard to study that and say, Uh, more intelligent animals like primates or dolphins or elephants. But that's not to say that there have been no attempts made to parse this issue out. So there's this great article. I highly recommend you read the whole article because it does a great job of explaining all these things. 
Uh, it's in Sapiens Anthropology Magazine by Jay Schwartz, an assistant professor of psychological science at Western Oregon University. The article is called, Is Gender Unique to Humans? In this article, there is a description of a study at Florida International University that looks at the behaviors of chimpanzees and bonobos, a couple of our closest primate relatives, uh, and they look at, well, could there be something like gender expression in these primates? Could there be a social concept of gender? And they found that in the wild, uh, social grooming behavior differs by sex. Now, with that alone, we still don't know whether this is like a gender expression or what it is, because that could it could be instinctive, it could have all sorts of uh, different explanations. But they did find that in captivity, social grooming behavior doesn't really differ that much by sex, which seems to indicate that, you know, these primates in the wild may have a different culture than primates in captivity, where in the wild they have a different social expectations for different genders when it comes to grooming behaviors versus primates in captivity who are cut off from that culture in the wild. Now, this is not definitive because animals in captivity, as I, I believe we've talked about on the show before, they are in a very different circumstance. So uh, because it's such a strange environment for them to be in and their stress responses and all their social organization gets kind of like messed up by being in this captive setting, it's hard to say, well, is this a difference because their cult, their sort of gender culture is different within captivity or is it because they're stressed and other factors? I don't think we really know yet, but this is really interesting to me that we're starting to, you know, think about like, well, you know, humans have a, a social gender construct and an internal gender construct. And, uh, you know, when we look at animals, if we look at our closest relatives, I don't think it's too far of a leap of logic to think, well, maybe they may have something, uh, you know, while not similar to our concept of gender, maybe they have something. Uh, and we just don't know. And I, I think that's, it's really interesting that we are starting to look into that. Um, but yeah, it's very difficult to research because like I said, you know, gender is an internal experience. Like, um, that that you feel inside, and it's also an external experience that you learn from your culture. So either question is quite difficult for researchers to answer when looking at a, a like say a primate culture. But we do know that primates do learn from each other, and they seem to have different cultures. So you have um, you may have like a group of orangutans who use specific tools to get termites or ants. Uh, where you don't see that in other orangutan uh, groups. So it, it seems to indicate that primates do learn from each other. They could form these cultures. So I think this is a really interesting line of research. And so, oh, as to your other question, Rachel, how do ticks work? <laughs> this is a great question because it does it does blow my mind when we talk about parasites. I, I love parasites. I don't, obviously, I don't want ticks on me. I don't want ticks on my dog. Uh, but parasites in general as a topic of research is fascinating because of how incredibly specialized they are. It's almost beyond belief. In terms of your, your question of, well, how does their 
needs for a host and mating interact, it, it does seem counterintuitive, right? Like, why would you, if you want to be able to mate, um, you know, having to be on another animal to get your food, it's like, well, that seems like that would potentially limit the dating pool because you're, you know, just hopping from animal to animal. But they actually don't have too much of a problem. So first of all, there are two main types of ticks. Uh, there are hard ticks and soft ticks, and this encompasses a number of species. Uh, hard ticks will actually mate on top of their hosts, which, you know, a little yucky, but uh, the female will gorge herself on blood after mating and then drop off to lay her eggs. Soft ticks, the other group of um, species of ticks, don't spend as much time on their hosts. They typically just kind of bite their hosts. They get a little meal. Um, so they uh, will actually mate off of their hosts. So wherever they are, usually like in grasses. And so they will feed after mating. So they mate, uh, feed on a host, drop off, and then lay her eggs. Uh, so in terms of the tick dating pool, unfortunately, there are just so many ticks out there, so many ticks in the sea, that they don't really have too much of a struggle to find a mate, even if they are hopping on an animal. So if you have a, a tick hopping on a deer, the chances that they encounter another deer or another tick on that deer, pretty high, unfortunately, for that deer. And if they do struggle to find a host to feed on and find a mate, they actually have some tricks up their little tick sleeves. Soft ticks can survive years between feedings if they can't find a suitable host and they go into this kind of stasis until they detect a host nearby. So yeah, they are, unfortunately for some of us who don't like getting bitten by ticks, they're very good at finding hosts and they're very patient. So they will be able to find a mate and a host, no problem. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, and this is a short and sweet question from Jay. Uh, who asks, why are possums so perfect? They have little hands. 
Uh, thank you, Jay. Yes, I agree. Opossums and possums are amazing. So opossums are the ones native to the Americas, and we often call them possums. Uh, if you're in really sort of deep in the technical uh, possum world, technically, um, possum refers to marsupials found in Australia, another, a very similar but a different species. Opossums in the Americas and possums are both marsupials. The possums found in Australia are arguably cuter than our opossums, but I think that's also kind of subjective, and I love opossums. I think they're adorable, so whatever. Um, but opossums, the uh, North American opossums, are actually the only marsupial found in North America. They also have opposable thumbs and prehensile tails that allow them to grip onto tree branches. So very curiously primate-like, but they are not primates. They are marsupials. Despite looking maybe kind of intimidating or scary, they are not at all aggressive. And when they puff up, it's kind of like a frightened house cat. They're just they're just trying to seem like they're big and scary and tough, and but really they don't want to fight you. That's the last thing they want to do. In fact, they'd rather play dead when they are seriously threatened. So they can actually lower their body temperature and release a foul smell to make the act very convincing. They're the Daniel Day-Lewis of method acting in terms of playing dead. They really don't want to mess with you. And they may kind of like surprise you sometimes because you're like, go, you're taking your trash out and boop, there's a possum. But uh, they, they really don't, don't mean any harm. And they all that hissing and puffing, that's all because they're scared of you. And they're actually great to have around in your community because speaking of ticks, which we talked about earlier, they love to eat ticks. They eat a bunch of ticks. They eat the same kinds of ticks that cause Lyme disease. So hooray for possums or opossums, whatever you want to call them. I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to judge you if you call them possums. I think that's totally fine. So, yeah, I love opossums, too. They're adorable. They're sweet. They're they're little trash buddies. And then I got some wonderful questions. Actually, two questions are very similar, so I'll answer them both at the same time. How do animals that reproduce parthenogenically maintain genetic diversity? Also, since platypus and some anteaters lay eggs, would you try them? And this is from 20% Magic on Twitter. And another question, those lizards in Arizona, where the species in only is only female, does each lizard just reproduce a clone of itself or are their eggs mixing somehow? If so, can we figure out how to do this with human couples? And this is from Hannah Michaels. I've actually had Hannah on my show and she's a good friend of mine. So thanks, Hannah, for sending in your question. I love these questions uh, because I get to talk about the whiptail lizard and I get to talk about platypuses and monotremes and I love all these animals. So here we go. First, I'll answer the question, would I eat a platypus egg? Uh, and when you say anteater, I think you are referring to the spiny anteater, a.k.a. echidna. Uh, actually, so echidnas, just like platypuses, are monotremes. And they actually aren't related to other anteaters like the giant anteater, but they're just called a spiny anteater because they have that long snoot and they do eat ants. So monotremes are a fascinating ancient off-branch of mammals, and they do lay eggs. So they they do actually produce milk though but instead of it kind of coming out of nipples all nice and tidy like most mammals it just kind of gooshes out of their 
There are pores on, on their bellies, uh, which is a little weird. But, you know, hey, you do you, monotremes. I'm not here to judge. Uh, but they do lay eggs. However, they do not lay unfertilized eggs like chickens. So every egg they lay is actually going to be a fertilized egg. So if I was to eat a platypus or echidna egg, I'd be eating some platypus or echidna embryo or fetus. So no, I would probably not not eat uh, one of their eggs. Not sure I'd like the mouthfeel. So now on to the question both 20% Magic and my friend Hannah uh, ask about parthenogenesis. So parthenogenesis is a type of asexual reproduction in which an embryo from an unfertilized egg develops to maturity. So it is true that reproducing asexually comes with the problem of limiting genetic diversity. Some species avoid this by going through cycles of sexual and then asexual reproduction. So aphids do this. There are actually many generations of clonal females with aphids, but then when the conditions are right, there is a phase of sexual reproduction. So during the parthenogenic phases, the asexual phases, the females only give birth to live female nymphs. Nymphs are immature aphids, and in fact, those nymphs can be born pregnant already with their own clone. So it's an aphid giving birth to an aphid, which is a clone of itself, but that little baby aphid is already pregnant with its own clone, <laughs> which is, you know, weird. This is called telescopic development. But as you guys pointed out, this is a problem because how do you maintain genetic diversity in your population? Because when you don't have genetic diversity, if you're all clones, as soon as there's a new disease or a new predator or parasite or even changing conditions, you don't have enough genes to kind of shuffle through to get characteristics that may help your species survive during these changes. So you'll just kind of go extinct. So their solution is to go through these periods of sexual reproduction in between the clonal reproduction. So this gives them the advantage of clonal reproduction, which is super fast, super smooth, like just pumping out many, many clones. You know, think of Star Wars, an army of clones. But then you just like every so often inject some genetic diversity into the population so you don't get this genetic bottleneck. So during the sexual phase, when weather conditions are right and the aphid females will start giving birth to parthenogenic females, but also males. So typically when they go through their asexual cycles, it's just female clones, a real win for feminism. <laughs> So, but during the sexual phase, they give birth to both females and males. And then that generation goes on to do sexual reproduction, and they actually lay eggs instead of giving life birth. So that's how they actually kind of have a little loophole that allows them to do generations of clonal females, but then they mix it up with a little bit of sex here and there, so they have some genetic diversity. As for the truly all-female parthenogenic species, there is one called the desert grassland whiptail lizards of New Mexico. So these are a lizard that is an all-female species. They do parthenogenic reproduction. They do not have sex at all. They're like, you know, Amazonian uh, mythical ladies who just are chilling out, all-female, 
Um, and they actually have a really interesting genetic story. So they actually have three sets of chromosomes that they got from the initial mutation that kind of spawned this all-female parthenogenic species of lizard. So instead of the regular two sets of chromosome that humans, other mammals, and other diploid sex-having animals have, they have three sets. And this means that the whiptail lizards can effectively shuffle through their deck of genes. They actually recombine their own three sets of chromosomes during the process of reproduction, allowing them to create non-clonal parthenogenic offspring. So when they give birth without ever having sex, unlike the aphids who are giving birth to clones, they're actually giving birth to a unique individual who is not a clone of themselves. And that is how they bypass that problem of genetic bottleneck. Also, fun fact, even though they do not have real sex, quote unquote, real sex, where it's, uh, you know, where they are exchanging genetic information with another of their species, they do pseudocopulation. So they will hump each other, essentially, do courtship and mating behaviors with each other, this all-female species, and that actually helps them get in the mood to give birth. So even though they're not actually exchanging any genes with their fellow members of their species, just the act of this pseudocopulation, you know, it, it helps kind of bring on the hormones that will help them give birth to their little Jesus babies, <laughs> all female Jesus lizards. So really interesting stuff. Uh, and I think it ties back in earlier when we were talking about just the incredible diversity of how sex works in nature. Uh, so if anyone says like, oh, you know, that's unnatural, like whatever sex thing, it's like you don't know anything about nature. It, nature is buck wild. I guess that's the definition of nature. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Here is a question from Mark F. This may be a dumb one. 
Uh, but how do animals know to breed with their species? How do the blue jays in my neighborhood know to breed with blue jays instead of the robins nearby? This is from Mark F. It's not at all a dumb question. Every time, guys, that you say like, oh, this may be a dumb question, it never is. So don't worry about it. Uh, this is a great question. In terms of like being able to breed with your own species, for some animals, it's just pure instinct. They, you know, come pre-programmed. Uh, with these mating instincts. Um, but for some other animals, including many species of birds, they actually learn as juveniles based on their parents. So this is called imprinting. So they, they see their parents after they hatch, and they imprint upon them that this is my species, this is who I am. And this is actually very important for many species of songbirds because this is how they learn their own species-specific calls. So their mating calls, their alarm calls, they learn from their parents because they imprint. They, as soon as they start to see the blurry world as little hatchlings, they see their parents like, this is me. That's who I am. Um, but sometimes this goes a little bit cockeyed because if birds are raised by another species of bird and they imprint upon the wrong species, they'll, that's, they'll just guilelessly think that they are this other species and they will attempt to mate with their adoptive parental species. In fact, this is such a problem that when conservationists raise baby birds, like in trying to repopulate birds in these conservation efforts, such as sandhill cranes, they have to be very careful that the sandhill cranes don't see that it's humans taking care of them, otherwise the cranes will imprint upon the humans. So in order to feed them, what they do is they actually have a hand puppet that looks like a sandhill crane to feed the birds so that the baby birds will see the hand puppet of the sandhill crane and think, oh, okay, this is what I look like. This is my species instead of being fed by a human. So you'll see these researchers like ducking under tables just like a Jim Henson operation, feeding these baby sandhill cranes, tricking them into thinking they're being fed by a sandhill crane so that they understand that's their species so that they can be released into the wild and understand their sandhill cranes and mate and uh, be able to repopulate. So, uh, but when you don't do this, a bird can imprint on a human and think, oh, this is what I look like. I must be a human. Sometimes they fall in love with human beings and, and they just think they're, they think they're people. Uh, and this can happen naturally as well. Uh, there was a Canada goose spotted. Uh, speaking of sandhill cranes, the Canada goose also imprints upon their parents, but this Canada goose was adopted by a sandhill crane, probably some kind of egg mishap, and it just thought it was a sandhill crane. So it hang out, hung out with the sandhill cranes, uh, thinks this is perfectly normal. The sandhill cranes didn't seem to mind it. So yeah, that's what happens. All right, and I got a question from another friend of the show, Alex Schmidt, host of Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, and I've had him on the show, and he's a great guy. Highly recommend his podcast. And he writes, what's an exciting thing worth knowing about woodchucks? And also <laughs> someone responded to this question saying, are they related to nunchucks? Uh, well, thank you for the question, Alex, uh, and thank you for the nunchuck comment, Albertan. Um, no, they're not related to nunchucks. Be serious. Come on. This is a serious science show and jokes will not be tolerated. Anyways, uh, woodchucks. So what is a woodchuck? Does it chuck wood? No. Why is it called a woodchuck? Well, I think we talked about this a while back on the show, but 
the likely story is that colonizers came here. They misunderstood the language of the Algonquian Native American Indian nation of Rhode Island. And so then they thought like, oh, that sounds like woodchuck, uh, which was probably a misunderstanding because their actual word for groundhogs is Okukchuan. Uh, or it could have been that the colonists thought that they were talking about a woodchuck, whereas they have a word that sounds kind of like woodchuck, but that's actually a word for a weasel-like animal called a fisher. So, you know, the name woodchuck is just based on stupidity. But uh, here we are. We call them woodchucks. Then we have tongue twisters. But really, hey, woodchucks are just groundhogs. So, you know, just groundhogs by another name. In fact, they have other names, such as whistlepig, due to the noises they make, or mouse bear, because I guess they look like tiny bears. I'm not sure I buy it, but hey, you know, I guess I'm, I wasn't there when they named these things. Otherwise, I probably would have named them little, little fluff buddies. And this is why they don't put me in charge of naming animals. So groundhogs, a.k.a. woodchucks, a.k.a. whistlepigs, a.k.a. mouse bears, are a type of large rodent. They are hefty little dudes. They weigh about 13 pounds or 6 kilograms. They're actually about the same size and weight of my dog, Cookie. So, you know, she probably wishes she could take on one of these woodchucks, but I don't think so. I don't think so, Cookie. Uh, so they're found all over North America, and they are burrowing animals who actually like bears, do hibernate during the winter months. In fact, they are really true hibernators more so than bears. Bears don't really hibernate in the true sense of the word. They go into a lighter state of torpor, like a really, really deep sleep. They do slow down their metabolism, but they can wake up. So during torpor, they will wake up relatively quickly in response to danger. But hibernation is a much more serious version of this. It's more like suspended animation, and the groundhog is almost completely dead to the world. During hibernation, groundhog's body temperature drops from 99 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about the normal human temperature, maybe a little higher, but it drops to 37 degrees Fahrenheit, which we would be so extremely dead at this point. Like anything around 70 degrees, we're already probably going to be dead. Uh, 37 degrees, we've probably been dead for a while. That's, yeah, no. Also, the groundhog's breathing slows to two breaths a minute, and their heartbeat slows to five beats per minute. So, like, about as dead as they can be without actually being dead. For the entire period of hibernation, which can last around 150 days, they will not eat and they lose about a fourth of their body weight. So it's able to survive this extreme food deprivation because their metabolism have, has been slowed to an absolute crawl. So it's essentially in suspended animation. Other quick uh, woodchuck facts, they are able to grind up tough vegetation like wild grasses because their teeth grow constantly to withstand the grinding. In fact, they grow around a sixteenth of an inch or 1.5 millimeters every week. If their teeth are not aligned properly and they are not chewed down by the act of munching on grasses, the teeth continually grow until they are tusks 
and they can actually be lethal if they grow up into the groundhog's jaw or grow so wonky and curly that they can't chew on grass. So groundhogs are actually quite social and friendly with each other. They dig burrows together. They whistle to report threats to each other. And if you think that groundhogs look a little bit like marmots, you are correct. They are actually a type of marmot. And by the way, marmots are actually technically a type of ground squirrel. So yeah, uh, other species of marmots and ground squirrels are also pretty social. They have these like little colonies where they dig burrows and they will alert each other to threats. So, uh, you know, this is what we got from woodchucks to basically ground squirrels. This is uh, quite a reveal. Fun fact about marmots, if you go hiking in the sequoias, in addition to making sure none of your food is left out, you also need to be careful about anything you have that has your human sweat on it because marmots love the salty taste of human sweat and will try to steal your socks, even your hiking poles, which I learned when I was hiking with my brother. Uh, A marmot grabbed his pole and ran as fast as it could. So if the pole hadn't gotten caught on a rock, probably the marmot would have my brother's hiking pole to this day. So yeah, they love the taste of human sweat, which I think is a little alarming because if they figure out they can make us sweat by making us really scared, we would probably be in some kind of marmot fear factory saw type situation. But luckily, they probably don't listen to this podcast. So, hey, maybe we'll be safe from the marmot threat another year. So to end the episode, I think I'll play you some lovely groundhog slash woodchuck slash whistle pig sounds. So you will see why they are also called whistle pigs. There you go. The North American whistle pig. Thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate you sending in your questions. If you have a question, it's not too late. I periodically do these listener question episodes. So you can send that in uh, to my email, creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com. You can send it in to the Twitter Creature Feet Pod, uh, which it's F-E-A-T, not F-E-E-T. That is something very different. Uh, also, Instagram. Creature Feature Pod on Instagram. And you can send those questions right in. Sometimes I'll try to answer them on the spot. Sometimes I'll save them for an episode. And I really appreciate it because these are great questions. And I like talking about them. And thank you so much to the Space Cossacks for their super awesome song, Exolumina. Creature Features, a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like the one you just heard, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? Where have you listened to your favorite shows? I don't judge unless you really watch this. See you next Wednesday. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.